Hi, welcome to chapter one of the Case for Space presented by said CGUHS. Today we're talking about Project Ice Giant. Uh, my name is Travis Daniel. Hola, I'm Ben McFan. Hello, I'm Jared. Jared Dixon. <laughs> uh, right now, SEDS is talking a lot about Uranus and how we don't know a lot about this planet because all we've really seen is like the Voyager flybys and what we capture optically of the planet. So moving forward, I'm wondering what should we be doing when we're, when we're staying in our local solar system? Where should we be going? What data should we be acquiring? What should we be discovering? Got a good question there. <laughs> um, I think one of the more interesting ones is has, has always been the potential for life, the potential for life study, especially since I'm one of those people that is always like, hey guys, not all life has to be carbon-based. There can be other things. It doesn't matter how unlikely they are, there can be other things. And mentioning that you know, Neptune and Uranus, they're both ice giants. They both have a lot of properties of water and they have a bunch of gas and they have ammonia and things like that. And all of those things are- well, we, we, That's what we think so well, far. Yeah, that's what we think. And from even just the, the limited flybys of Voyager 2 and the potential for life, I feel like even in the far out reaches of our solar system past Jupiter and Saturn because I mean Jupiter and Saturn are the only ones that we focused on a lot lately with their moons and all things like that but the potential for life outside of those planets themselves I still think is just as viable as the potential of life on Mars well I mean you, you can look up like NASA big questions right and they have three big questions I don't remember what the other two are but one of them is uh, are we alone so we're so focused on looking for this is a habitable planet for space life. This is where we need to find it. We have this huge list of requirements for what that's supposed to be. But I think we need to look more into what can life be that is beyond what we've observed. Which is why when we're looking at these ice giants, well, one of the things we have observed, contradicting myself, is that Water is a really big building block for what we need. Carbon's a really big building block for what we need. So if we can start observing in these gas giants, maybe some more fluid adapted life forms or possible possibilities of life being born there, if we could extract from more of our local planets uh, data to see if maybe the ingredients of primordial soup are present. and if that can be found in any of our water worlds besides just Uranus and Neptune. Right. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like, I don't know, I can't believe until recently I didn't know that there's so, so little we know about our own solar system. Yeah. Like, why don't we have a man-made sa satellite around every planet already? When I, I guess I would have to do something that, like, like when you're in grade school, you're taught, like, yeah, we know everything about every planet. And yeah, well, that, that doesn't end up being the it's case. It's like the same line of thought of saying, oh, yeah, we're all, we live in a geocentric solar system and everything revolves around us. 
well, we're so we're so stuck in that that elementary school of thought. Yeah. That we're not moving forward. A, a big reason, I think, on why we don't have a man-made satellite around every single planet is because since the end of since the end of the space race and the end of the the end, and I put that in quotes of the Cold War. NASA and a lot of space agencies across the world have found difficulty finding support for these types of things because no one sees a purpose in it anymore. And that's one of the big things that NASA's goal is. And I feel like it's one of the big things of one one of our goals is, is to explain to people that space is more than just having fun and sending rockets up into up into space for kicks and giggles even though it is fun it is, for it kicks is and giggles very but. much fun and very much kicks and giggles but at the same time past the kicks and giggles and the fun of it there is a purpose to it no matter where we send the rocket even if it's just like voyager one where we're launching it into the depths of space and hoping for the best yeah there's there's a purpose behind it and i think especially in the united states people struggle to see the purpose of having a man-made satellite around every planet in our solar system. They struggle to see the purpose that if we were to learn more about these planets, we can indirectly learn more about our Earth itself and how we got here, why we're here. You have 90 minutes. What? 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 (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) How we got here. Don't worry about it. Why we're here. Like the fact that people, people cite and they always know that Jupiter is like our it's our protectorate you know they, they it protects us from asteroids and things like that how do right. we figure that out i mean we we spend a lot of time looking at the sky right yeah. i mean we have been for thousands of years and a lot of stuff like um i don't remember who did it but we were talking about it at the space visions uh 2019 right where we were able to observe one of saturn's moons going across it and that's how we could tell that there was an orbit and we was venus was it venus Venus. and from that we were able to determine like the size of the planet yeah based on how fast that was moving in our sight i think looking at jupiter looking at its size and looking at what we know about gravity we can kind of determine what's going on there uh to a degree but there also has there has to be some things we've observed I don't know. It's just... I don't know if it's just me being ignorant or if my brain has pulled a major blank, so correct me if I'm wrong, but the asteroid belt is between Mars and Jupiter. Yes. Yeah. So there's a, there's arguably a big potential for a lot of asteroids to come and hit Earth because they're in the asteroid belt. I mean, one scenario... But those of, asteroids are in, like orbital velocity with the sun aren't they yeah but there's always the likelihood of an unfortunate scenario where one of those is launched towards earth or mars or something like that and something happens to us but the cool thing about space is it's so it's really predictable yeah so we 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 see these things moving in this orbit right we saw these asteroids moving in this orbit but they're most likely just going to stay in that orbit yeah uh when we're looking for asteroids that are actually coming towards us that are on the oh no we got to evacuate earth because we're all gonna die (laughs) those are asteroids from those are asteroids we aren't observing and that we're not that we're not predicting their movement paths until it's so close yeah which is subjective so close can be a thousand years or a millennium some of those asteroids i think are also um like extrasolar 
asteroids that they come from outside of our solar system from other places in, in the whole universe they've just been launched from they come from outside of our solar system and somehow yeah. get to where we are I mean you know how it's not really somehow but they, they get to where we are and they pose a threat but it's interesting it's interesting interesting uh, I kind of want to move things back towards Uranus though yeah it's okay that like going on tangents is cool <laughs> but um I still have more questions about this planet because it's still kind of a mystery yeah. once again it's hard to believe that there's so little going on around there with what we're doing um to aid in discovery uh and one of the things that baffles me that we were doing research on is their uh, the axial tilt compared to the tilt of the magnetic poles, right? So that if we're looking at Earth, weird. of course, we're not a perfect, like, vertical, uh, ver vertical Ax axial spin yeah. compared to the sun, um, nor are we perfectly vertical uh, magnetosphere. But the, like, the degree between the axial spin and the magnetosphere is only, like, 11 degrees. And this is a common if i'm not wrong this is common among a lot of things we see and yeah we, we turn our eyes to, towards uranus and i don't know how we know this but we see that it has a nearly horizontal um over spin axis spin, yeah right overly horizontal yeah it's overly horizontal and yeah. it's magnetosphere is almost vertical it's like 58 degrees to that axle mm -hmm. to where it's near perpendicular and I want to I want to know how that came about yeah because from, from what I understand from what we know about magnetic fields that comes from the inner cores of planets and as then all the things that are inside the inner cores it's what is going on in Uranus's core that throws its magnetic field that far off of its axial tilt yeah and and is and maybe to also pose the question does do magnetic fields really even have to be close to axial tilts or are they completely independent do they have to be somewhat dependent on each other or are they independent and we just don't know because ours is so close to each other i wouldn't think it'd be i don't i wouldn't think that it would be dependent on each other because the doesn't the the, the axial tilt that has something to do with the Never mind, I actually don't know. I don't know what <laughs> that has to do with anything. I mean, but the magnetic, the magnetic field is from the core, and we know yeah. that. But and it's, core be it's because has, the core is has it has something ferrous in it. Right. If if there is a magnetic field, there are ferrous metals right. in the planet. Right. And I mean, if you think about it, does the core have any effect on axial tilt? Do the poles have any? Do, do the axial poles have any effect on the core? Well, what's so weird is, you know, every other planet in our solar system has a near a near vertical axis yeah. of mm -hmm. spin. And then we look at Uranus and it's just like, no, I'm going to be different. <laughs> I think, I feel like there does have to be a correlation, though, between like the magnetosphere and the axial spin. Because I feel like there is, too. I don't know. We, Gary and I, we do electronics, right? Mm -hmm. And there's this component called an inductor. And it's basically when you slide a magnet or something ferrous, right? It's a 
It's technically ferromagnet. Tech. Well, yeah, that is a thing. Technically, yes. it's a fer, a ferrous magnet, uh, going through a copper coil, and it generates electricity. Or you could have a current running around a uh, ferrous object and have that create a magnetic field. So if you have a current going around, say like a nail, if you had copper wire wrapped around that nail and you sent a current create electromagnet. It, it would, yeah, create an electromagnet. I'm just thinking that, I don't know, my, my small brain over here is taking the, uh, <laughs> the that coiling idea and relating it to the spinning, right? And we have these, this ferrous stuff in the middle of the planet, and it's spinning. And you'd think there there would be some kind of relationship, but we could just be jumping to conclusions with that as well. What if we're all wrong, and the core of the Earth is the big hideout where they have a giant magnet, and it's, it's true. got a coil around it? There's a giant inductor right yeah. in the middle of the Earth. Oh, definitely. Yeah. With a, a superior race right there, Ooh. and they're. They're controlling the world. They built the pyramids. They're keeping right? the secrets from us. Yeah, they are. It's not okay. They move the tectonic plates. They they know Obama's last name. They do. It's they know okay. the last digit of pi. They know the last digit of pi. Mm-hmm. They don't think that pi equals three. See, <laughs> well, then they are definitely not superior. Because <laughs> we all no. know pi equals three equals no, e. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. <laughs> Everyone back in November, right in November, was so focused on uh, Area 51. That I they... equals three equals E gives me nightmares. I hope you <laughs> all know that. Gives me legitimate mathematical nightmares. But they're the same. Uh, okay, you got me there. <laughs> well, pi, pi is 3.14, right? Yes. We can approximate to 3.14, but we can't approximate to 3. No. Why? Because point one four down the line is very important. If a quarter of an, if like point one, I don't, I don't know where I'm going with this right now. No, because you know I'm right. You know, I don't like that or, you got me there, but I'm gonna agree with you. Yeah, because you're right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's like if a quarter of an inch is such a big deal, then how come almost half of a quarter of something isn't a big deal? I don't know. I think. Uh, in, I think. For half of a quarter. Yeah. I said almost. Because <laughs> I know that it's over half of a quarter. Yeah, eighth. but almost implies half of a that quarter it's is less than. Not, not really. Almost does not imply less than. It doesn't. It implies less than, but doesn't mean less exactly. than. It was implied. <laughs> I, I, I rest my case. <laughs> it was implied. It was not meant that way though. so anyway uranus equals pi oh equals three equals e <laughs> uranus equals, Neptune, equals right? pi oh no we've gone down a rabbit hole and i don't like it we've gone down a <laughs> hole that we can't get out of <laughs> and i i don't know it's just it's access is so weird it is and with, with this project we're working on right now where we're, we're writing this, this nasa proposal this quote-unquote nasa proposal um, for our engineering class, it's we're like we have no man-made satellites up there, so yeah. why don't we send something up there and put it in polar orbit to allow it to to see everything that's going on there? And we've done uh, I forget the missions, but we've sent 
a satellite to the moon before, or at least done a flyby in the moon and done gravitational field mapping yeah. to determine the internal structure of the moon. If we can do that, why can't we do something similar to that in orbit around Uranus to help determine the internal structure or, or composition well, or density? Or The whole question use... of why can't we, I think, goes back to we don't have a lot of support. Or and if we're like financial support or public support, just support oh. in general. And I think if if you're going to, like if we would somehow find a way as high school students to send a satellite out there, you'd you'd have to justify why Uranus. Because people can say, like, for Psyche, for example, why Psyche? Well Psyche could be the only uh, example that we know of so far of what the core of a planet might legitimately be like without having the rest of the planet there. And th right. in that, we can learn about our own core. What about Uranus is so similar to Earth, other than maybe a couple of the gases that are present there? And it's like, with that, you, there are some problems, but I feel like there's also some things that I'm not thinking of in which you could construe this or mold this into well, finding a legitimate purpose as to, mm. to send something out there. I think a, a lot of space missions aren't always done with the idea of development. I mean, what we've been looking at is, uh, what is the AO application uh, of opportunity or announcement, announcement, announcement of opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. We're looking at the announcement opportunity and all the, the opportunity, the, the discovery missions were about just that discovering. Yeah. And I think we've, in modern times, we've kind of gotten rid of the importance of just simple scientific discovery in favor of creating things that help. And this is coming from an engineer, right? I'm, I'm one who's <laughs> like, I want to build something. I want to I want to change something. But it's also important to have those scientific discoveries as a foundation for something new. Because something really small can just, it can spark a new idea. The, yeah, that. And I also think that, because you have, you have a good point that we've kind of lost that um, appreciation for small scientific advancements in favor of just building gimmicky things that yeah. make life easier. But I also think that in accordance with that, we've also lost the appreciation for small scientific advancements and instead appreciate the really grandiose ones, the ones that are huge. Oh, you know, the, the I don't know, my, my dad was talking to me a while ago about somebody who claimed to find the the connecting the connector between um, quantum mechanics and classical physics or something like something along those lines which is or huge this, like he claimed to find the connection between quantum mechanics and general relativity and special relativity which is like a huge accomplishment if he actually did I, I didn't look into it more because it was just you know a verbal thing I didn't have sources or anything like that but that would be a huge thing but no one pays attention to like the most recent Nobel Prize winners who were doing research into exoplanets out there and those are small scientific discoveries of exoplanets that won them the Nobel Prize I think it, you know it, it really goes back to the public support like you're saying the, the, the small exoplanets and stuff we're like okay so there's another rock out there I, the novelty of discovery starting to wear off on people and I think they need to be reminded of the importance importance yeah. of what's going on um, as we're trying to figure out senior quotes and stuff I'm trying to look at a lot of stuff <laughs> so you know uh, there's there's one that I found that we're actually going to be talking we're going to use on Friday uh, for from Carl Sagan and it's like 
every race either becomes a spacefaring race or becomes extinct. One of the other ones that I think is one of my favorite that I think you, you Travis, showed me was um, the universe is not obligated to be understood. By NDT? Yeah, and I think with small scientific advancements and with you know moving back to a place where we appreciate even the small discoveries, I think people need to realize that th that quote is true that the universe is not obligated to be understood, but with each scientific advancement, no matter how small or big, we are moving towards understanding it, even yeah. if it doesn't necessarily want to be understood to a certain extent. Yeah, even if the universe doesn't want to be understood, I still think, I don't think the universe is obligated to be understandable to us, but I think we are obligated to understand the universe. Yeah. And that we need to spend more tr time trying to discover those things. Because, Looking at Uranus, a, a local planet that sparks no inspiration in the common person, well, what if we're passing up something huge? Yeah, that's what if there's point. something there that's within our grasp that in today's time, we can technologically make it there. We can fiscally make it there. We've done it before. We've gotten past those planets. In a relatively what short amount of time. Yeah. Too. What if we're missing something? What if we've just completely skipped past it and there's something huge waiting for us just a couple million miles that way? And there, there honestly could be because with such a big focus on Jupiter and Saturn, those planets lose their luster. Those planets don't get any attention. And from the, the vague memories that I have of the diagrams, they have things like nitrogen and ammonia on there. Mm -hmm. And those are those are present on Earth, and those are pretty important on Earth, if I can remember correctly, with things like plant cycles, nitrogen yeah. and ammonification or something along the lines of that. And maybe we are missing something. Could there be life forms that are grounded in nitrogen rather than carbon? I mean, I'm getting a, a weird look from I mean, Gary. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Well, the, the reason we, we look at carbon as the building block of life is because it's so reactive. Yeah. Right. It can combine with pretty much everything, including itself. <laughs> and it's just, there's so many outputs from that single, from that single atom, right? Um, but you brought up silicon-based life. Right. So uh, looking at carbon, when you go, usually when you go down the periodic table, you stay in the same relative uh, you generally elements have the same ish uh, properties as you go down the table. Yeah. So aren't they grouped like that too? Right. Yeah. They're like in, alkali metals. Well, those are. Gases. Well, the alkali metals are like that because they're going down. Well, yeah. They're, and they're, they're, they're all very similar. Yeah. In what they do, and when you look at things like carbon, right directly under it, you have silicon, which I think is element twenty-one. Uh, I'll, I'll check on that. Or 27? I don't remember. But you have you have these elements that are very similar to carbon, and it's been theorized for... I don't, I don't know exactly how long, but it's been theorized that um, similar elements to carbon could possibly react and create life. I don't know the feasibility of silicon being one of those, but considering it's the next step down from carbon... Yeah. 
And it would seem the most likely. And I don't think there's a lot saying that that's not perfectly plausible. I mean, that sounds perfectly plausible. Right. And is there anything that we have out there to really say no to that? Well, it's okay. one of those things where it's we can't really prove or disprove it. It's just kind of there. Other than the yeah. fact that like heavier elements past iron are very hard to come by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, looking at our own our own sun, it gets like well, usually most stars yeah. when they get to iron, they start to to, to to decay. Wow, I couldn't say that word. Um, they usually start to decay because of um, just the heaviness of the molecules, and it's hard to keep fusing those together. Yeah. So it eventually will just run out of um, the, hydrogen. It's really, really hard to fuse iron. Yeah, that's the element. Iron together within the stars, and they 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 basically run out of energy to a certain extent because they're using so much of it to fuse iron. They can't use some of it to keep their own gravity from destroying them. So then they they collapse in on themselves, and then kablam, supernova. And then we get really pretty things in the night sky. Really pretty, and we die in an instant. <laughs> well, you know, if humanity survives for a very, 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 very long time, we won't actually see our star shrink or blow up or anything like that because it'll expand to a red giant and engulf Earth before anything else. So we need to leave Earth. We need to leave Earth. And to leave if we Earth. That long. And to leave Earth, well, you know, there's the, the thing where. We haven't met any other intelligent life. Which is really weird. What? Well, you, you know, it, you would think it'd be more likely to meet intelligent life than non-intelligent life, because intelligent life would also be searching for intelligent life. Right. Right? And, and, yeah. But the theory is some life gets, they're intelligent, but they destroy themselves before they have the ability to become spacefaring. That's called the Great Filter. It I know it starts be, with an F. I'm pretty sure it starts with an it, F. The, I, think paradox, the one you're, I think the one you're thinking of is called Fermi's the Fermi Paradox. Fermi, yeah. yeah. But I don't think that's necessarily that they destroy themselves before they get spacefaring. From what I understood the Fermi Paradox to be was that from a purely mathematical and statistical viewpoint, the fact that we have not encountered any other intelligent life form, even if it's the intelligence of like, I don't know, an ant, even if it's yeah. just semi-intelligence compared to a multicellular to what, organism. Yeah. The fact that we haven't encountered that is almost zero on statistical likelihood because of just the, the sheer amount of variety and amount of planets and solar systems that are out well, there. It's it seems it's a paradox because we haven't found anything in everything that we've seen, but there should be something according to mathematics. We haven't started with the great filter. Yeah. Oh. We haven't started collect like receiving signals or trying to receive signals until the past sixty or seventy years, I believe. Which and we haven't started years. transmitting until within that time span either. Which mind you in like a galactic scale is nothing. Nothing, yeah. I mean our our signals are optimally gonna be traveling at the speed of light. Yeah. Right. Um but what if it's what if we're receiving signals that aren't light? That's that's another thing yeah. that's out there is we what if we're so what if radio is still a primitive form of communication and 
there's something better out there, something that's moving faster than the speed of light um, to be better with communications. And we just don't have the technology to receive those signals yet. Do you think we're getting close with quantum computing though? I think there's definitely promise. Um, it's still really, really new uh, with what we're doing with quantum computing. And even then, my small mind isn't able to comprehend <laughs> what, what's going on there. Yeah, I don't understand it either. That whole thing of with, with um, I think they're qubits for quantum computing. Right. And how they can be zero and one at the same exact time. Yeah. And you're just like, wait a minute. That, uh, what? I know. <laughs> like, we're studying logic gates and stuff right now, and <laughs> logic gates are all about it's zero or it's one or it's it's and it's it's making a choice it's a true or false decision if something is true and false at the same time then the computer is gonna get really confused (laughs) (laughs) and whenever i read that that qubits can be zero and one at the same exact time one i was like that what explain that a bit more and two i automatically thought of schrodinger's cat Oh, that that yeah. whole thought experiment with that, or that whole scientific concept. Would it just be phi? Mm, Zero maybe. and one. Maybe. Phi. Yeah, phi. Oh, but yeah. that whole thing of like, um, it, the, the cat in the box, and if you don't open the box, you don't know whether the cat is dead or alive. And technically speaking, it is both dead and alive because you can't tell which one it is you can't eliminate the other option so technically it's both at the same exact time and then you won't know until you open the box and that whole thing translates into quantum Mm. science and the fact that and i think an electron or some other type of particle can be no it's an electron yeah an electron can be can be something or be somewhere i'm not sure which one it can be multiple places at, it could it could be multiple places at once we, we observe same, it like hopping yeah, between yeah. energy levels it would be at the it would be it can be at multiple places at the same exact time but we don't know where it is because as soon as we look at that electron it is it is put into one of the places that it is because as soon as you open the box oh the cat's dead so then you eliminate the other one looking at the cat eliminates one of the options so looking at an electron would eliminate one of the places that it is and put it into the one and put it into the other place and that goes into the concept that in quantum science just by looking at something it changes it from its natural state because to look at something it has to interact with photons so it's inherently not in its natural state when you look at it right can we really observe anything in our natural state by that logic though nope everything in its natural state is unknown to us because to look at it, it has to interact with photons. Yeah. What if you shook the box? (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. What if you moved the box so fast that it dodged all the photons? (laughs) What if we sent two rockets going at the speed of the rocket? Oh, no. Yeah, so two two rockets in space. Um, And we have one person in one, another person in the other. There, we can push mass to move half the speed of light, and they're going in opposite directions. So you you look back, and what do you see? And I know we've discussed this before, yeah. but I think it'd be interesting to talk about again. Well, during the math circle, Mr. Morris 
pulled up something on his phone and he showed it to me. And from what it looked like, it was regarding this question. And mathematically speaking, if you were to do that, from what I understand, and to just to put this out as a disclaimer, I could be totally misinterpreting. I'm what sure that we're was. totally misinterpreting everything that well, we're talking well, about. Probably, but, <laughs> but I'm sure I'm. I I could be totally misinterpreting that whole entire mathematical paper that he showed me. But from what I understand, that if you were to do that, if you were to have both of them going away from each other at half the speed of light, and you were to look back according to math that other person would be going 0.96% the speed of light. 0.96%? But why? I don't know. Now I'm really interested in seeing that. It's not Because that's completely, that's completely well, different. It, 96% the speed of light. Oh. 0.96C. Okay, huh. that makes more sense because 0.96% is a lot less no, than Oh, no, yeah, sorry. There's, there's going to be bad. like a... A super physicist out there listening to this and it's like these guys are idiots <laughs> why are they going to college why are they going to college these guys are idiots just stop <laughs> uh, but yeah so we're coming up on 30 33 minutes whoa really wow dummy thick time see I told you we could just like talk it's great I mean, yeah, so there was, we had a couple questions about Uranus. So we had, we were talking about its axial spin, its internal composition, uh, the possibility of life, right? And its magnetosphere and in, the magnetosphere. in so, relation to its axial spin. In relation to the axial spin. So we, we've covered all of our bases that we're going to have on our talk on Friday. Um, which, for those of you who don't know, we are in high school and we have a uh, an engineering presentation uh, based on an what is it an uh, announcement of opportunity mission? Yeah, and we we've come up with this one for Uranus. Essentially, a child's version of a NASA proposal. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. We've been given three days to come up with something with a timeline and a budget and all this. Requirements. It's more of an exercise than anything. Um, oh, you know, we didn't talk about those. What we're looking into is sending that, that satellite into orbit with it. But oh, the CubeSats. The CubeSats. CubeSats. So CubeSats are really cool. It's a new phenomenon or semi-new. Um where we're sending smaller satellites into space as filler for some of the empty room we have in our rockets. So what if we use these as not as just a filler space, but actually as a, a tool to gather more data by sending a parent satellite to Uranus and having it deploy these CubeSats and stuff and see if maybe we can align with the magnetic field or with the axial spin to collect more data to map gravitation and things like that. And I, I don't know, it's just these new technologies that are within our grasp and oh, definitely. I think we should be trying out because if we look at that, if we look at the announcement of opportunity, it's uh, talking about the, the TDOs, the technology demonstration opportunities. And we were saying before we want to show you know, the coolness of space and get the public interested in it again to get that support. But we still do need to be doing that development. So by trying new technologies in space, we're seeing 
the effects well, of what we can do. Right. And We're essentially testing whether something like this would work again. Yeah. Like we could do this with Neptune, say. Well, yeah. I mean, one criterion of a science, anything really is re replicability, being able to be replicated. If you can't replicate what you just did, it's really not worth your scientific time. Yeah. Also, I think we should have, if we're, if we're doing a launch that far, we should have more than one thing going that way. Right. We're not going there just to take pictures. Right, we're not going to spend well, yeah. millions of dollars just to, you know, take hundreds a picture. Hundreds of millions. Yeah, hundreds. Hundreds of millions of dollars just to go there, take a picture, and then plunge into it. Yeah. Uh, uh, rip Cassini. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Poor Cassini. Yeah, so, I don't know. Um, there's not really much going on in the scientific community with Uranus either. At least and that we know of. That we know of from what we've looked at in our couple of days of research. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just, it's sad to see that we're not as involved with our own solar system as we can be. Especially when we're looking so far outside our solar system, when many of those things aren't technologically achievable yet. Like, we're not going to go a thousand light years away. Yeah. to observe a planet. Yeah. Because we physically wouldn't... Well, we... Yeah, technically physically, we wouldn't be able to go see that, or we wouldn't be alive, or humans might not even exist a thousand years I now. hope they do. I hope they do too, but... It'd be really I'm, unfortunate I'm, if they didn't. I mean, it's possible. It's possible that, you know, that satellite would get there, and whatever we were looking at wouldn't exist. That is true. That's true, too. It's like, what if we wanted to go send something to the nearest star, right? Which I don't know what our nearest Proxima star is. Proxima Centauri? Is yes. that, is that it's it? like 4 million light years four away. Million. Yeah. Let's say we want to send something to that star that was 4 million light years away. Well, assuming we're still here, and assuming we can collect the data that it's going to transmit back and all that, well, it's going to take 4 million years with our current technology for it to transmit that and even that if, signal back and if we send it what if we send it there and we don't know it now but that star is already dead yeah and we're just seeing its ghost that's true which is insane and just reminds me of I, I think I already told you about it Travis that one video that I saw on Instagram of all places of a, a scientific it was a scientific page so don't blah 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 but um it was a video of the night sky and you could see a supernova happening. You could see one of the stars in the sky light up really bright and the, the circumference, I mean, you, you see stars in the night sky, they're very, very tiny. It was a big circle of just bright, bright light. And then it goes out after a couple seconds. And that star could have died billions of years ago and we're just now seeing it die. Yeah. Time is weird. I mean, <laughs> For all we know, the entire night the entire night sky is empty. Maybe there are no stars out there. And that actually reminds me. Um, I think I also saw somewhere that um, right now we're at the like where we are in terms of a time scale for the universe is just perfect to see the night sky and all the stars because if we were if humans were to be as advanced as we are millions of years down the line the universe will have already have expanded so much we wouldn't be able to see stars in the night sky it and would just be black so frustrating and scary to think that everything is going to continue getting further away and make our efforts even harder which is 
which is why I think we need to focus so much on uh, discovery and the the statistics of math, theoretical physics, <laughs> right? And see, maybe we can, uh, instead of moving ourselves through the planet, planets, move the space around us and go into hyperdrive and be Star Wars and Star Trek. <laughs> you, you know, because otherwise we're setting ourselves up for a failure. Yeah. Without actively trying to find that technology, we are setting ourselves up for failure. We will never be able to explore the universe. And I think with people who wholeheartedly think that space exploration, with everything that it brings and everything that it is, is worthless, I think those people are don't understand that they are they are setting humanity up for failure. Because I'm sorry to whoever's out there who thinks that we can save the Earth, but we can't. Even if we do fix climate change and everything, millions of years from now, really? the sun will expand and engulf Earth, and we can't stop that. See, I still think we can save Earth. I don't think it's going to be the best place for our efforts, but I believe even with the sun expansion, if we focus our efforts on it, we can discover things that nobody even thought possible. Probably, And yeah. move the Earth. Do something immensely crazy like that. We have millions Honestly, of years to figure it out, but we're procrastinating. I, I, yeah, I'd agree with that one. I'd agree with that. And I was, I was thinking about it a little bit. So you've seen, like, graphs in, in biology and things like that, graphs of population over time population yeah. versus time right. and you'll it'll start really low and then it'll just skyrocket all of a sudden then it'll plateau right and i think to a certain extent scientific advancement does the same thing it'll start off really slow it'll skyrocket for a while and then it'll plateau at the top do you think we're near the plateau i think i think there's a plateau but it's not flat um it's <laughs> it's this idea of there's low-hanging fruit like an apple falling on Isaac Newton's head, <laughs> a low-hanging fruit, right? Um, and it sparked something. It, it gave him ideas, and it discovered something new, uh, ideas of gravity and stuff. But we were going to figure that out. There's no doubt in my mind we would have ever discovered that we, we, we wouldn't have ever discovered, right? Um, gravity and all that. And it's because it's something that's it's easy, it's easy to see a ball rolling and theorize, yeah. right? But we've gotten out of the way of all the easy things. Now everything that we're doing is very, very complicated. Which is why we need to be focusing more of our efforts into it. Yeah. If we don't want to be slowing down in advancement, like if we look at the derivative of our advancement, we're looking at that rate of change, right? <laughs> let's, let's differentiate our rate of change. <laughs> we, we, want, we want to keep increasing. Yeah. Or at least stay constantly positive. We want to be there. We want to, to, to continue advancing technologically. But as problems get harder to solve, we need to be adapting to those problems. And yes. I don't think we're effectively doing that. I agree with that, as, especially just because it's I think we've been going about it the exact same way that we went about the easy stuff. And you're not going to get the hard stuff if you're going about it the easy way. You have you have to adapt. You have to change what you're doing 
to get the things that keep escaping us, that keep yeah. going away from what we're trying to do, that keep, you know, they're just out of our reach. I don't know what we need to do. I don't know. I don't know how to change it. I feel like I might come up with some things through college or through my professional career. But as of now, I don't know. But I still think there's something we need to do. I think, like, going back to what you guys said about how we're we're kind of at a plateau in science right now. And I think it'll be interesting. We, we definitely won't be able to see it. But in, say, two or three hundred years from now, or maybe even a thousand years from now, where science now, where, like all of the astro science we have up until this point will be that starting point for the astro science we'll have thousands of years from now that will be the slow starting point and then it'll accelerate again maybe we're mr morris uses this analogy all the time like basic math is arithmetic yeah for us it's arithmetic yeah um coming into high school basic math is algebra yeah going into college basic math is calculus yes now figuring out arithmetic was it took us a long time figuring out algebra it took us a long time discovering calculus took us a long time so maybe we're at the point in the universe where we're discovering that new basic for what we need that that new tool that we need to be able to discover more things yeah i can see that and I, I'd like to think that we are, and I'd like to think that sooner or later, preferably sooner, obviously, that basic will just, that new basic will be instituted because, I mean, I, I think about it quite often, the fact that, one, my father never took calculus. He just completely avoided it. And two, the things that I've done in my biotech class, like gel electrophoresis and DNA isolation and transformation within bacteria, that type of stuff was reserved for like college professors when my mom was in college. Yeah. She was baffled that I've done gel electrophoresis because she said only her college professor could do that when she was in med school. And now I'm doing that in my high school classes because new basics have been set. You know, in biotechnology, advances have been met so much that gel electrophoresis is now fodder for high school kids. It's not as important as it was. It's important, but there are other things going on now. And I think I think soon there there will be a new basic. I just I kind of have just a feeling there will be a, there will be advancements soon that'll just I don't know. In third grade, we might be learning algebra instead of learning algebra in like fifth graders. I don't well, know. I mean, that, Travis that'd be... was talking about that a while ago, of how, like your freshman year of high school, you could take calculus one, and by the end of your senior year, you could you could have mastered calculus. Yeah. Well, I think. Yeah. I don't know. It's this. I think math needs to be taught better in general. Where you're going that. off of there, and. I really do think we could be coming out of high school with knowledge in third-year calculus. I mean, we've seen other high schoolers at some of the events we go. They're seniors in high school, and they're in their third year of calculus. I mean, Ben, you, you took calculus last year. You're taking stats now. Garrick and I, we're, we're taking calculus now. and I'm in my senior year just now learning calculus, yeah. which is surprisingly still a 
advantage over my peers in college. Yes. And the other thing that I remember talking to with, I don't know if it was my father or just somebody else, but the, the realization that really one of the, one of the worst things that has ever happened to mathematics is having society label it as just the worst thing ever. When it's not. When it's not. Because now, if you're bad at English, there's there's kind of something wrong with you.